Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Welcome to Capturing Hearts Through the Beauty of Artistry. My name is Jason Barney, and I'm really excited to share with you about the apprenticeship model of teaching today. So um, what I want you to do is, again, I want to make sure you're interacting and thinking through the things that I share. It's not just uh, me in the front dispensing information that you don't have some time to chew and digest. So I want to make sure you find someone near you that's going to be your partner for this session. Make sure you share your name. And um, I'd also like you to share what comes to mind when you hear the term apprenticeship. So meet someone, find a partner. You can have a group of three if you need, and then say, hey, what does apprenticeship mean? What, what, what comes to mind for them? All right, let's come back together as a big group. Hopefully you were able to meet someone, share some ideas about apprenticeship, what comes to mind when I use that term. Um, my big picture idea is that we want to capture students' hearts, and um, if you think about the different spheres of a human person, we aim a lot at their heads, especially in school. And um, ultimately, right, if we if we go for the head but miss their heart, we're going to be kind of stuck. Right? It matters what a student knows, but it also matters how much he cares. I'm kind of paraphrasing Charlotte Mason on that one. Sometimes the route to students' hearts, though, I think is actually through their hands, which is what I mean by capturing hearts through the beauty of artistry, through them uh, getting their hands dirty, as it were, in the work of creating. So with that in mind, um, let me step back and mention Bloom's Taxonomy. Modern education has been enormously influenced by Bloom's taxonomy. Some of you may know it. In my first couple years as a teacher at a (coughs) classical Christian school, an administrator handed me a sheet that had all these different verbs that had the kind of different types of questions you should ask to go up the hierarchy of objectives in Bloom's taxonomy in the cognitive domain. So some of those are things like knowledge, comprehension, analysis, synthesis, application, and evaluation. And abstracted like this, and just focused on what Bloom, this kind of university examiner and all his colleagues, called the cognitive domain, They intended to uh, write an affective domain as well to get at the heart and a psychomotor domain to get at the body, but they put the affective domain off for like more than 10 years and never got to the psychomotor. They ended up splitting out head, heart, and hands. When actually as human beings, these are integrated, right? They work together. And that's something we need to know about our students. But with this Bloom's taxonomy, I think one of the problems with it is this abstraction of intellectual activities as if they were transferable when they're not. So going back to 1950 or so when Bloom's taxonomy 
was uh, written by, again, this group of university examiners who wanted to get those teachers in line and make sure they were being clear about their lesson objectives and targets. If you go back just 10 more years, you'll get to C.S. Lewis on the other side of the Atlantic writing the book, The Abolition of Man. And has anybody read the book, Abolition of Man? It's one you should put on your reading list. It's been enormously influential in the classical Christian school movement. It's short. It's a dense read. I mean, it's Lewis after all. But in it, he argues that modern educators are making men without chests. This heart function has been overlooked. And they're doing that by um, focusing on this false form of objectivity and seeing through all traditional values. And so, you know, that abstract intellect of Bloom, I think, is part of the problem. And in a way, if uh, Lewis could have talked to Bloom and his colleagues just a short 10 years later, he would have said, it would have been better if you focused on the heart and let the head take care of itself. And I think part of this is things like courage, justice, prudence, temperance, faith, hope, charity, the cardinal and theological virtues were overlooked and kind of sidelined by the uh, modern educator. And and in addition to not knowing what to do with the heart there, I think the modern educator also doesn't quite know what to do with the arts, right? The arts, um, not just content and these abstractions of the mind, but, um, but the arts, the liberal arts, the seven liberal arts, the common arts, things that we do with our hands and create, and also the fine arts. We could include the performing arts. And, and I think part of why we don't know what to do with this is that we've sort of lost the apprenticeship model in our focus on these kind of abstract intellectual um, skills, if you will. And so, you know, what was art is, is no longer so. When we say art too, right, we're thinking of something different. We think, I suppose, just of fine art, but we don't include all the liberal and common arts in that. And so I think the process of apprenticing students into various forms of artistry or craftsmanship is absolutely crucial for capturing their hearts and developing in them broader intellectual and moral and spiritual growth, actually. So in this um, session here, we're going to explore how to capture students' hearts through the beauty of artistry, through apprenticing them into the creation of beautiful goods or works. Now, if you've been in some of my sessions up till now, I've addressed narration and um Implicitly, I've been talking through how to capture students' hearts through having them narrate beautiful truths and take those into their heads and then down into their hearts. And um, for both of these, I have a free resource that I can offer you if you go to educationalrenaissance.com. I have something to share with you near the end of this session that's like real practical. What is this? How does this change my lesson? So we're going to an apprenticeship lesson and what that might look like for you. Um, But you can also find that online at educationalrenaissance.com as well as how to use narration for this other type of lesson. And I really think that there are multiple types of teaching. 
there are a few different modes that we go into, and this is one of them that I, I'm going to talk about this time, and I really want us to recapture. When we're focused on content, the tradition would have called that sciences, bodies of demonstrable knowledge that we can pass on, whether they're natural sciences, like we call science today, or human sciences, or even the theological sciences. The tradition would have seen all those as areas of knowledge. We really want to focus on arts, artistry, craftsmanship. Um, in Greek, Aristotle used the term techne, uh, which is interesting when you think about technology and things like that. But techne is uh, an ability to produce something in the world following a true course of reasoning. So you have to reason about the world that is, the materials that you have, and have a vision for creating something new. And that's what's happening in all sorts of arts, whether it's the rhetorical art when someone crafts a speech or an essay, or it's in your fine art class when they're going to create some sort of painting or something like that. Question? Would yeah. Like, uh, sorry. Would like engineering something be included? Yeah, engineering would be one of the mechanical arts in um, the ancient medieval Renaissance conception. And in fact, it was sometimes mechanics was used as a particular category of arts, for instance, in Hugh of St. Victor's Didascalicon. And so there's this deep sense of like, hey, a category of things that we do as human beings is that we create things in the world. And how do you teach someone to create something? That's what the apprenticeship model is about. All right. So again, I've mentioned that... Um, Artistry or craftsmanship is maybe a better way to translate what we often translate as art because that gets into your mind the kind of subjective quality. If someone could have an, an artistry in a particular area, but then not in another area. It's, by the way, one of Aristotle's five intellectual virtues that he talks about in his Nicomachean Ethics. So if you think about what our goals are as um, educators... Are they Bloom's taxonomy, knowledge comprehension? Yeah, that's part of it. He's grasping at something. He, they actually just used what modern educators were using as their language for their goals. But um, the problem with those is that you, if you have analysis, well, what are you analyzing? And if you learn to analyze something, can you therefore analyze something else? The, the thing that's helpful about thinking in terms of artistry is that there are actually traditions of artistry or craftsmanship. And you have to learn the tradition. You have to be apprenticed into the way of, for instance, making a boat or doing a painting. If, you're, if students are going to learn, say, fine art, like a, how to paint, that's entirely different if they're being apprenticed in, um, in Florence and today. Because we've got traditions of craftsmanship in these areas that have developed over time. The same is true with writing and public speaking. Now, I almost sound at this point, probably to some of you, like an absurd relativist. Because I'm saying, basically, the arts are relative to the cultures and traditions in which they are embodied. But isn't that the case? We create different things. If you learned navigation in the ancient world... And then you came to our modern age today and got on one of our military boats. You would not know how to use the GPS and like the buttons and things, right? We have traditions of artistry or craftsmanship in our place and time, in our language. 
And teaching classically doesn't mean you just train them in ancient traditions and things, but that you actually teach in a fully orbed way that follows the apprenticeship model and gets them doing those things that you want, creating those things beautifully and well. So I may have belabored that, but I really want to get this <laughs> idea across that like you must be a master apprenticing them into a particular art. If you're going to teach them the art of grammar, then you need to know some grammar or actually how to create something grammatical. And you need to help them do that. And that accords with, say, what Tammy Peters was sharing in her um, sessions on grammar. I was a part of one of them, for instance. Um, but apprenticeship really is this kind of established method of training students in creating beautiful goods of one kind or another. Um, and again, I think this idea of apprenticeship, of training, is to a certain extent lost on us because we're so used to thinking in terms of standardized tasks and giving them multiple choice that we're not actually judging the things they create. We're creating these little micro intellectual tasks for them to do as opposed to these fully orbed traditions of artistry. And uh, I think that's in part because of our... Bloom's taxonomy is in the architecture of modern education. We just keep thinking in terms of it. So that's why I think what we need to do as classical educators, one of the things that we need to do is we need to recover the arts. All of them, or a wholeness of them, to reference John Henry Newman's university, like a university was a wholeness of the arts and sciences in the original con conception, what it meant. So we want to pass on to them some meaningful arts. Both the liberal arts of the trivium and quadrivium, so arts of language, arts of mathematics, and common arts, fine arts in our schools. And ultimately, I think that this apprenticeship model is hardwired to delight their hearts because their souls delight in things that are beautiful. And they, we like form our identity when we're young based on what we can create. Just think, it, think in your mind of how, how students growing up start to affiliate based on whether I'm in soccer or I'm good at this or that thing, whether I can do art. Right? They start, their hearts and who they are starts getting defined by the type of artistry or craftsmanship they do. And so if we can apprentice them into some good and beautiful arts and do it in a way that captures their hearts, I think we're really getting somewhere with them. Um, and this is because the creation of good and beautiful things is innately human. God created humankind in him, his image to be the stewards of creation. And he commissioned human beings with the cultural mandate, the call to fill the earth and subdue it. And I think that this means, amongst other things, an invitation to all the creative arts, or that God wants us to be sub-creators under him, to use Tolkien's term. And um, as proof of that, we can look to Genesis 4, how even after the fall, in spite of sin and its disastrous effects that we see in Cain and Abel, we actually see the progenitors of various common liberal and fine arts. So in Genesis 4, starting in verses 20, after Cain and Abel, it tells us that 
Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. And so right here in Genesis 4, the apprenticeship model was born. And we can note that it was initially passed down in families. So apprenticeship and this father-son, mother-daughter relationship went hand in hand. And it's because of this that I think that apprenticeship in true, good, and beautiful arts is human. Like it's innately human and therefore part and parcel of the kind of wholeness or fruitfulness that we want for our students as human beings created in the image of God. So I've talked to you a lot about apprenticeship at this point, kind of frame the big picture. I'd like you to turn to find that partner that you found earlier. And if you're on the right, can you start sharing about this idea of apprenticeship versus Bloom's taxonomy? What can you recall? Person on the left, interact with them some, add some things, share some ideas, and we'll be back in a couple minutes. All right, let's come back together. Five, four, three, two, one. So I've mentioned the idea of apprenticeship vis-a-vis our kind of modern focus on cognitive things only. Um, of course, the, the fact of working with our hands is deeply intellectual. Like I said before, artistry is one of Aristotle's five intellectual virtues. And we know now from modern learning science that like the hardwiring that's going on in the brain when skill development occurs is just truly amazing, right? So working with your hands is intellectual. It is also bodily. And by the way, sitting and thinking (laughs) is also bodily. It requires a type of concentration that needs to be developed and habituated over time. So higher contemplation, which is great too, I'm not, a, I'm not saying anything against that, requires a type of bodily... So what I'm getting at is that head, heart, and hands are interlocked and intertwining. So actually just trying to separate out cognitive was part of the problem with B- Bloom's taxonomy. Because we don't work like that. We're actually wired together, right? Um, we stand between the angels and the animals as human beings. And the apprenticeship model is a great example of that. Like, what do we do as human beings? We create things. We till the earth. This is part and parcel of what it means to be human. And we apprentice our children into the arts that we've discovered and developed over time. And that's so important and crucial, and it's familial in nature. And the very fact of it's being traditional and familial when we apprentice a student into an art means that apprenticing students also carries with it by nature the lifestyle of the master craftsman to a certain extent. All the arts are embodied by their master craftsman in a way of life, involving their beautiful creation and practice alongside, ideally, a, a full and good life. Um, but let me be clear, this very fact means that apprenticeship in the arts 
as a means of capturing students' hearts must be embodied as part and parcel of a whole Christian life. So if Christian parents apprentice their child to a pagan man who's a master of rhetoric, they should not be surprised if the child eventually takes on the moral and spiritual faults of this man, even if they also are gaining some of his rhetorical skill. That's how human beings work. In the same way, if a girl is apprenticed to a immoral music teacher, immersed in a pluralistic world with its values, it's not impossible that the influence of that world will be transferred to her alongside the art. And I think this is one of the forgotten premises by which our Christian classical schools are attempting to operate, to really take that reality in hand and understand its, uh, its importance. Uh, in the modern factory model of education, we've forgotten what Jesus said in St. Luke chapter 6, verse 40, a disciple is not above his master, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Disciple, apprentice, student. We've forgotten that these are roughly equivalent terms. And so... Of course, when we follow the kind of lead of the tradition and partially apprentice students to a whole bunch of different arts rather than just one, we are minimizing to a certain extent the the negative influence of any one teacher, but we don't really depart from this principle. Uh, We might say, I think that an ideal classical Christian school should be this sort of university, like John Henry Newman talked about, a wholeness of the arts and sciences. And the apprenticeship process that's going on here actually occurs under the leadership of a a headmaster, a head teacher or a lead teacher. That's also what the term principal used to mean, by the way. Principal as in chief teacher. And that um, the whole school then of teachers under this chief teacher are passing on a communal way of life together. The culture of the school with all its teachers, its curriculum, classes, its traditions, apprentices, individual students. And I think this insight is captured well by a saying at the school I'm a part of, Cormdeo Academy in uh, Carmel, Indiana. We say that we apprentice students into the great conversation for the purpose of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. So, so far, I have at this point indicated by a couple statements the way in which apprenticeship in artistry, i.e. into various arts, these established traditions of craftsmanship, whether they're liberal or common or fine, contributes to capturing students' hearts, Uh, ultimately for the type of life we want them to have in the joy and salvation of Christ. And um, the two ways are really, one, the fulfillment of our human calling in the creation mandate. We're all sub-creators. This is a beautiful thing. Artistry is part of how we experience wholeness as human beings. But second is through this uh, Christian apprenticeship into the life of good works that's enabled by Christ, our true master, by his life, death, and resurrection. And so as a 
people under that master, we then can apprentice to him our children in a way that's characteristic of the family of God. And so we got to remember at this point too, like the, there's a real warning there that um, non-Christian masters, teachers, artisans are by nature liabilities as well as potential sources of blessing of the beauty of artistry. We got to think about that. And so with these two overarching considerations, I want to now explore with you a method for apprenticeship. Like how do we actually do it? And because the underlying assumption is that if we do our apprenticeship work really well, as unto the glory of God, right? Like a, a painting needs to be a great painting to glorify God. We want a great, beautiful church building to give glory to God. In the same way, if we do our apprenticeship really well, and at the same time are faithfully connected to our Lord and Savior, then we can help them participate in the full life of what it means to be human and a redeemed humanity even more in uh, creating good and beautiful things in this world. So, so we're going towards a general pedagogy of apprenticeship. There are many arts. You probably all teach different arts, right? You're going to teach a whole bunch of different arts to your students. Our next step is to lay out, okay, well, how do you do that? Like, is there a general method for teaching an art now that I've framed how doing it well can capture their hearts. Let's pause here and turn to your partner again. Person who didn't tell back last time, tell back what I've said about big picture of apprenticeship and its traditional nature, how important that, important that is. Uh, whatever you can recall. Go. <laughs> Are you ready to take your classroom or school to the next level? Here at Educational Renaissance, we want to equip you with skills and practices that will help you achieve your goals as educators. Join us for our next live webinar and take a deep dive into the topics you've learned about through our blog posts, podcasts, books, and videos. Learn practical skills and get your questions answered to level up your classroom or school. Simply sign up for our next live webinar on our webinar page at educationalrenaissance.com. Learn more about upcoming webinars or find other downloadable content. If you believe teaching is a craft, then join us for our next webinar where you can be apprenticed to gain valuable skills and practices. Sign up at educationalrenaissance.com. Let's come back together in five, four, three, two, one. Okay, just so we know what we're all talking about, let's try and think of like what are areas of creative artistry? What are the arts? Um, I'm going to get some on the board. So I've given you these three designations. I want to sh give a shout out to uh, a friend, Chris Hall, who wrote a book on the common arts called Common Arts Education that's published with Classical Academic Press. I feel like he was, he, did I hear that he was here in a previous year? Yeah, I remember when talking with Mark Salisbury that he, he came here. So common arts, really important idea to recover. Um, you know, can someone share with me, does anybody remember what some of the liberal arts are? What are some of the liberal Dance. arts? Okay, I'm going to put that in. So if we got the trivium um, and quadrivium. So what are some of the trivium arts? There are three. 
Okay, we got grammar. And then, you know, you can say logic or dialectic, depending. You know, there's argument on that, right? So dialectic and rhetoric. rhetoric. Oh, we, we got good classical educators in here. Give yourselves a pat on the back. Great. What about the quadrivium? Yeah. 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 One more? Geometry. Geometry. So these are the traditional seven liberal arts as they were canonized. And I want to note here that as arts, the tradition recognized these as areas of craftsmanship in which a student learns to create something uh, new in the world using words and numbers as the primary materials. So many of you in here teach these, right? Mm -hmm. But sometimes you think of yourself as just teaching information about these as opposed to teaching students to produce in these, right? So like arithmetic, like you can do things with numbers. You can calculate, right? Geometry, you can chart and graph. And astronomy, you know, you can anticipate where the stars are going to be next Tuesday, not just where they are today. And music, you can play or create a harmony of different things, depending on who you ask. So those are some of the liberal arts. Now, what about common arts? When I say common arts, what comes to mind? Shout it out. Welding. Yeah. Painting. I'm going to move that one. Well, it depends on the type of painting, doesn't it? Because if I go in my house, I'm like, we're painting this wall here. That's different than if I go, I'm going to paint. So this is interesting. The common and fine arts have this sort of uh, relationship, actually. And that's, that's not by accident. Because if you, think of, if you think of almost any fine art, there's like a common art at the base of it. So you think of, oh, I'm going to go build a house. Building. That, at a certain level, like that's a good thing. A house is a good but at a certain level of like, I'm going to make this a palace, a glorious house, a beautiful house. In fact, I'm going to make a cathedral. That suddenly became not painting anymore. But we just like to use some Greek terms, and then it turns it into very fancy architecture, right? <laughs> so there are a lot. So, and we could, you know, you're probably starting to think of more in your mind, common and fine art. So this is what I mean. These are areas of artistry, and you want to, you teach them. And I, I would submit that you actually do an apprenticeship model. And being becoming more aware of what apprenticeship is and takes will make you a better teacher. So that's where I'm going here. Um, so while each of these arts is distinct, I think we can say that we do some things differently when we're apprenticing students into arts than we do when we're teaching them knowledge. We can call it, I can call it coaching, and you'll have a certain set of activities come to your mind, for instance, right? Training activities and different types of artistry have more in common with one another than they do, say, with cultivating wisdom or scientific knowledge or intuition or philosophic wisdom, to quote some of the other intellectual virtues of Aristotle. And so, um, you know, thankfully, I'm not the first person to try and say, hey, let's have a pedagogy of apprenticeship. 
So I'm just going to rely on someone else in the tradition. And that is uh, this great Christian educator, um, Renas late Renaissance era, John Amos Comenius. He's a Czech um, thinker, and he developed a pedagogy of art and his great didactic. And, um, and so he starts out with what artistry requires. Like, what are the things you need in order for artistry to develop in his uh, pedagogy for art? He says, first, this art re primarily requires three things. One, a model or conception. That is to say, an external form which the artist may examine and then try to imitate. Two, the material on which the new form is to be impressed. And three, the instruments or tools by the aid of which the work is accomplished. Okay, so you got three, model, conception, material, instruments. Now, the model or conception may look very different in different arts. So a model of a house that you want to build is different than a map of where you want to sail or the imaginary arc of a penalty kick in soccer. But all arts require this mental image or plan upon which the artist operates. Art cannot be an accident, for then it would not be art, but chance <laughs> in Aristotelian terminology. Ever chanced on making something beautiful? Whoops. <laughs> well, that worked out well, <laughs> right? In the same way, the materials worked may be vastly different from the wood, metal, and straw used in building to the words, phrases, and arguments used in logic and rhetoric. Finally, instruments are necessary for craftsmanship, from a voice box for singing to the gardener's gloves and the astronomer's telescope. We need a model. We need that mental image. We need materials, and we need tools. Now, while it may seem obvious to point out these different artistic requirements, they are of immense help to you in a pedagogy of craft. How often do art students work on projects without a clear model or conception to imitate? Have you ever tried to have them create some project? You never gave them a model, right? We can forget also to help beginners learn the basic principles of handling tools and materials correctly, particularly in cases where the tools and materials are less obvious, like the meanings of words, grammar, and syntax in the case of the language arts. So I think this draws attention to the fact that these requirements point us in the direction of a few other things that are sort of prerequisites for artistry. And this is what Comenius says. When the instruments, materials, and the model have been provided, three more things are necessary. He likes threes. Are necessary before we can learn an art. One, a proper use of the materials. Two, skilled guidance. And three, frequent practice. That is to say, the pupil should be taught when and how to use his materials. He should be given assistance when using them that he may not make mistakes and that he may be corrected if he do. And he should not leave off making mistakes and being corrected until he can work correctly and quickly. So I think Comenius's comments here illustrate the idea that one of the main problems in teaching the arts comes from rushing the early stages of development. I'm guilty of this. 
The teacher or coach too often assumes that the novice knows how to use the materials or will not make any more mistakes after being corrected once or twice. Ever thought of that in math, for instance? They won't make mistakes. I made it so clear in the demonstration. <laughs> no, they're going to keep making mistakes, says Comenius. They need frequent practice to develop artistry with numbers. It's not going to come like that. And so the training of the hands, whether literal or figurative, must be slower and more methodical than we are inclined to make it. Bad habits can easily be acquired through insufficient attention to the basics. And we can also note, I think, positively that it's not without significance that cognitive psychologists has, have developed the terminology of mental models. Has anyone heard that term, mental models? You'll encounter that in some modern learning science. And I think that's ideal for a student's absorption of these models or conceptions into his intellect in order to perform some artistic activity. So the writers of Make It Stick define a mental model as, quote, a mental re representation of some external reality, noting that they're extending its use to motor skills, referring to what are sometimes called motor schemas. So they, they illustrate their definition of mental models using a, an example of artistry in a sport like baseball. So think of a baseball batter, they say, uh, waiting for a pitch. He has less than an instant to decipher whether it's a curveball, a changeup, or something else. How does he do it? There are a few subtle signals in the way the pitcher winds up, the way he throws, the spin of the ball's seams. A great batter winnows out all the extraneous perceptual distractions, seeing only those variations in pitches. And through practice, he forms a distinct mental model, or actually multiple mental models, based on a different set of cues for each pitch. Now, the thing you should know about that is that a pitch comes incredibly quickly. Like, the amount of time that the brain has to do this does not allow for the analytical intellect to work. That's way too slow. It has to be, like, hardwired into their body, and even into, like, the spinal cord to immediately react that quickly. So... We can note from this example that a person doesn't necessarily need to be able to articulate with words a mental model in order to have it. Like that baseball hitter can't tell you what he sees. He couldn't describe it, but he sees it and his practice is there. Um, if his conscious mind were to get involved trying to categorize and analyze the cues, the ball would have already flung past the plate. So often an artist's mental models are like those sorts of motor skills, hardwired in an almost instinctual bodily response. And these models, according to Comenius, are formed by, quote, frequent practice with the immediate feedback of whether he was right in his swing or wrong. Right, you got to keep practicing, okay? You put, put in the hours. Um, it must be reality that the artist is modeling in his mind as he works with his materials according to the natural constraints of the art himself, which is part of how Aristotle defines it here. So, so this is kind of a big picture of 
the three things required, the model, the um, materials, and the instruments, and then what a student actually needs, kind of the prerequisites for developing artistry over time. Um, let me pause there. Turn to your partner. What strikes you? What did you find interesting so far from this pedagogy of craftsmanship? Go. Moving on with uh, Comenius here. The importance of frequent practice and like correcting those mistakes, not moving too quickly on from the basics, but giving them time and instruction to work with their materials is a really important takeaway. One of the other dangers in Comenius's mind for us and our apprenticing students into arts is that we might overemphasize theories and precepts at the wrong stage of an artist's development. So he notes in his first canon on artistry, what has to be done must be learned by practice. He goes on to say, artisans do not detain their apprentices with theories, but set them to do practical work at an early stage. Thus they learn to forge by forging, to carve by carving, to paint by painting, and to dance by dancing. In schools, therefore, let the students learn to write by writing, to talk by talking, to sing by singing, and to reason by reasoning. In this way, schools will become workshops humming with work, and students who've, whose efforts prove successful will experience the truth of the proverb. We give form to ourselves and to our materials at the same time. So we can see here that Comenius lends his support to this classical understanding of the liberal arts as forms of verbal and numerical craftsmanship. When we linger over the theories and rules without giving our beginning students practice in talking, writing, singing, and reasoning, we're breaking the cardinal rule of training in artistry. I just love Comenius's vision of schools as workshops humming with work. I think that sets an inspiring standard for us to judge our teaching by. And I believe that it accords well with Dorothy Sayers' interpretation of the trivium as the lost tools of learning. So, I have a question. So, um, with this model, let's just say you want them to do some sort of project in which they're incorporating the content they learn. So, instead of having them build a project at the end, you'd have them sort of experiment with building things without knowing anything and then gradually teach the skills as they're working on it. Yeah, as much as possible, Comenius would suggest that you have them start with the rudiments of the art. So you might, it might be that, you know, for instance, uh, a challenge with some project-based learning is that it throws them into all aspects of the project at once, where he would suggest this sort of imitative model where you, you give them step-by-step -step things to create so that they develop the necessary skills for more complex creations later step by step and that you build them up. That said, there are times when 
you want to throw students a challenge that has multiple parts if you think they can get there and you can coach them to it. But yeah, he would be all for this happening, but also in these arts, right? It's about their production, that you get them doing the work first. And I, I think that, you know, what he's saying here in essence is that the formation of students' mental models and artistry should occur not primarily through precepts or rules that we teach them as abstract ideas, but instead through examples. We should give them many examples. So in grammar or in math, do examples with them on the board. Don't just state the theory first. And there are a lot of good curricula that try to do this sort of thing. He actually, uh, Comenius quotes Quintilian, the famous classical rhetoric educator, um, saying through precepts, the way is long and difficult, while through examples, it is short and practicable. But alas, how little heed the ordinary schools pay to his advice. So in every age, I think we're forgetting this and need to recover it. Uh, he says of, of grammar, for instance, the very beginners in grammar are so overwhelmed by precepts, rules, exceptions to the rules, and exceptions to the exceptions, that for the most part, they don't know what they're doing and are quite stupefied before they begin to understand anything. Mechanics, common artists, do not begin by drumming rules into their apprentices. They take them into the workshop and bid them look at the work that has been produced. And then when they wish to imitate this, for man is an imitative animal, they place tools in their hands and show them how they should be held and used. Then if they make mistakes, they give them advice and correct them, often more by example than by mere words. And as the facts show... The novices easily succeed in their imitation. So I think Comenius gives us a few key steps here for artistry, <clears throat> which I add kind of modern educational terms to in what you're receiving now, this kind of apprenticeship lesson structure. But first, we want to give students general acquaintance with the works produced, the kind of end products of the art, inspire them with the beautiful creations that they could learn to make then students will respond with that natural desire to imitate through producing works. Then as a teacher, the master would provide students with the proper tools and models for their use, using examples primarily um, of the techniques. And then you correct the students, right? And so you could think of this uh, under the rubric of I, we, you. I, I demonstrate, show you an example we, we do something together and I coach you through it with guided feedback. And then by the end of the lesson, you are doing the creating. And I'm coming along to check that you're not making mistakes and correct you and help you and maybe give you a precept or a rule then as I correct you, not at the forefront. And that's basically the, the lay down, you know, um, the, at the, in the lesson that you'll see, I start with a do now because it's like, get the students doing something. Get them writing, get them reading, get them um, solving some math puzzle, get them singing, you know, or some warm-ups, whatever it might be. Like, get them doing the activity of the art first and then lead them through that IWU process with some purposeful practice and feedback at the end. So there's so much more to say. I'm sorry I went over a little bit, but hopefully this was helpful to you as just thinking of the big picture of apprenticeship and why it matters if we do it well, and then giving you some tools, maybe, 
to uh, tools is kind of ironic given the topic of everything I've been saying. Um, to think through in whatever arts you teach, are you using this apprenticeship model where you help students develop these meaningful arts in this way? Have a great rest of your day. Thank you.